So I appreciate as I was laboring to prepare uh, this morning, I, uh, <clears throat> I couldn't help but think back to last weekend and uh, appreciate uh, the weekend debut of Pastor Andrew. How many of you are here for Woo! Pastor Andrew's weekend? Did you do a great job? <clears throat> well, in his debut, now Pastor Andrew's a really, really sharp guy, also a very funny guy. I generally have to plan my humor ahead of time. Uh, he can just do it like right on the fly. Um, He's a really sharp guy, and he's just finished his doctorate in uh, New Testament studies and is, is back with us and is just a great addition to our team here at Hope. Um, and in his weekend debut last weekend as he preached on uh, the parables of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, um, he introduced a sophisticated word because he's a really smart guy. Now, Andrew and I grew up together here, and we're very, very good friends, and so occasionally, occasionally, we'll poke fun at each other up here. You know, but just so you know, it's always coming from a place of love. It's always coming from a place of much love and respect. <clears throat> so I'm going to do that right now. It's okay. <clears throat> so last weekend, Andrew intru- introduced this word, circumlocution. Now I had to stand in the mirror and practice saying that like five times before I got up here. <clears throat> circumlocution. But that is just a sophisticated word that means um, using a phrase or a figure of speech that is a roundabout way of saying something else. And so last week, Pastor Andrew taught us that the phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is really a circumlocution for God's reign, for God's rule. Now, Pastor Andrew and I also like to sit and review and compare our sermon notes and bounce ideas off of each other. And so we were sitting in my office uh, this week and <clears throat> kind of going over my, my sermon outline. And, and my title, you'll notice, is You All Better Recognize. <clears throat> right, Lauren? Better. And I really believe that church is a time that should be enjoyed, not necessarily endured, if you know what I mean. And so I like to try to salt my messages with cultural references or sayings that um, are very familiar to us and that we can maybe, I can maybe anchor a biblical truth to. So if somebody like says like, dude, you better recognize, immediately you'll think like, oh yeah, man, Pastor Mike preached that sermon, you better recognize. So there's this uh, urban colloquialism in our culture, you all better recognize. And that was the original title of my sermon. But then Pastor Andrew said to me, like, Mike, um, I don't really think that you can get away with that kind of urban colloquialism. You're a little too suburban for it. And I was like, ouch, man, that stings. And then all of a sudden it hit me. I was like, wow, he just used a circumlocution with me. That was his way of saying, like, Mike, you're not cool enough to stand up there and say that. So I adjusted the title of my sermon, and it is now, You All Better Recognize. And the reason for that is because uh, in the four parables that we're going to be working through um, this morning, Jesus is, is talking about recognition, and recognition of three key things. So this morning, we're going to talk about uh, recognition of kingdom worth. We're going to be talking about uh, recognition of a kingdom warning. And we're going to be talking about recognition of kingdom wisdom. 
So kingdom worth, kingdom warning, kingdom wisdom, those are the three headings on your outline, and those are the three things that we're going to be talking about this morning. And so uh, with that little bit of introduction uh, introduced to you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles or boot them up, if you will, uh, to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to begin reading uh, at verse 44. Jesus said, excuse me, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Church, this is the word of God. As we consider these four parables, as we consider this uh, unit of text this morning, I want to begin by pointing out um, that this text, that these four parables, fall in Matthew chapter 13. And the Gospel of Matthew has a very interesting structure. Um, the Gospel of Matthew is predominantly narrative, with that narrative broken up by long stretches of Jesus' teaching. And specifically, there's five of those stretches of his teaching, and we refer to them as discourses. Jesus' first discourse is the Sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays down a new Torah for a new covenant. And the second discourse, which we've worked through this year, is the missions discourse, where he begins to prepare his disciples to go out on mission as sent ones. Behold, we are all a sent people, right? And this third discourse, which we've been camping out in more recently in Matthew chapter 13, is referred to as the parabolic discourse. And it's referred to the parabolic discourse because Jesus is teaching primarily, completely, in parables. And last week, Pastor Andrew pointed out that parables are like thought bombs, right? And I thought that was so memorable. Parables are like thought bombs, but they're not meant ultimately to increase our intellect. They're meant to penetrate and soften our hearts. They're aimed at our hearts. And so all throughout Matthew 13, throughout this parabolic discourse, Jesus is teaching in parables, and the subject of all of these parables is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which is God's inbreaking rule, His reign. And so in chapter 13, Matthew has painted this very poetic, parabolic portrait of what God's reign looks like as it is being ushered in. And lots of people are freaking out about Jesus and they're wondering, like, is this the guy? Is this the Messiah? And the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah who would put down sin 
and who would throw off the oppressor and who would reestablish Israel as, as the centerpiece of all the nations through which God would reign. But they weren't expecting a Messiah who was God in the flesh who would come and die. But you see, Jesus knew and God knew that the first problem that had to be solved finally and ultimately was the problem of sin. And in order to solve our problem of sin, God had to die. And so Jesus began disclosing the mysteries of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. And he's teaching in parables. And Matthew 13 is broken into two halves. In the first half, Jesus is teaching in public by the sea to the crowds in parallel, in, in, in public, in parables. And in the second half, Jesus is teaching to his disciples in private in the house. And in the last few weeks, uh, Pastor Zach spent one weekend teaching on uh, the parable of the weeds. Now you can see that Jesus teaches on the parable of the weeds to the crowds in public. But then he transitions and takes his disciples into private and explains that parable. And parables have this interesting effect. They have a different effect based upon who receives them. For those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts that are soft and receptive to the message of the kingdom, to the gospel, the parables are understood. The disciples can understand the parables because they have ears to hear, as Jesus says. But the crowds, many of the crowds and the religious leaders are hardened. And so as Jesus utters the parables in public, they don't understand the parables. And it's as if those parables are pronouncements of judgment over them. And so you see this contrast between public and private, between the crowds and the disciples. And so today, in our four parables, Jesus is in private, instructing, discipling, teaching his disciples about the kingdom. And so we're going to look at the, the parable of the hidden treasure, the invaluable pearl, the net, and the new and old treasures. And so I want to invite you to look with me now at verse 44, where Jesus begins to tell them that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And so Jesus is now comparing the kingdom of heaven to this treasure. And the first thing that we know about this treasure is that this treasure is hidden. Now Jesus in the parables that Pastor Andrew taught last weekend, those parables were the final parables that Jesus was teaching in public. And Jesus taught the crowds that the kingdom is not what you're expecting. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It begins small, almost imperceptible, seemingly insignificant, but surely it will grow into something great. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven in dough. You don't see that it's there, but it has a sure and steady effect on the outcome. And so the kingdom of heaven seems imperceptible in those parables, but God is faithful to finish what He begins, just as surely that mustard seed will grow and just as surely as that leaven will have its effect in the dough. But now here in private, Jesus turns to the disciples and He says, the kingdom of God is hidden. It's hidden. And indeed, he said in the beginning of chapter 13 to his disciples, to you it's been given to know the mysteries. To you it's been given to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it's not been given. To them the kingdom is, in some sense, secret, hidden. And so Jesus now, in teaching his disciples, says, uses the analogy of this buried treasure and says that there, there was a treasure that was buried in the field, and so the treasure is hidden, the kingdom is hidden. 
But by definition, treasure is also what? Valuable. It's worth something. It's something of, of great value. And so Jesus says that not only is the kingdom like treasure that's hidden, um, it, it, he says it's not just is it hidden, but it's like treasure, which is valuable. And the picture that Jesus is beginning to paint is of a treasure that is of supreme value, right? A treasure uh, that outweighs all valuation, a treasure to which no other treasure can compare. And so this treasure is hidden, this treasure is valuable, but something very interesting happens in the first half of this verse. We see that there's this man in the field, and he, he discovers the treasure. The treasure is, is discovered. It's, the context almost seems to suggest that he stumbles upon it. And when he stumbles upon the treasure, what does he do with it? Does he take it? Does he go to the owner of the property and say, hey, I would like to buy this treasure from you? What does he do? He covers it back up, and then he goes away, and he sells everything that he has so that he can go and not buy the treasure, but buy the field that contains the treasure. Because surely if he went to the owner of the field and said, I want the treasure, the owner would say, no, 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 I'm never giving that treasure away. But this man does everything that he possibly can, surrenders everything in his possession, cashes in everything he has of value, and marshals it to acquire this treasure which he has hidden back in the field. So the treasure is hidden, it's valuable, it's discovered. You know, many of us come to faith in Jesus, many of us hear the gospel different ways. We all have different testimonies, don't we? I was raised to hear the gospel from a very young age. I was raised in this church. I was introduced as your guest speaker. Well, I'm a guest of this church circa 35 years now. <clears throat> my, my dad, Pastor Zach, he, uh, he came to faith later in life by God's grace. He stumbled upon the kingdom, much like this figure, much, much like this man who stumbled across the treasure and then went and sold everything. My dad's testimony is that he gave up everything. God really took everything. But then when he found the gospel, when he found Jesus, it was of supreme worth to him. So some, some who find the kingdom aren't looking for it, but stumble upon it. But the parable doesn't stop there. Jesus continues, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Then. The second half of this verse begins with the word, then then tells us what happens as a result of seeing the treasure. Then tells us what happens as a result of apprehending its value, apprehending its worth. Jesus tells us then in his what? Joy. <clears throat> Jesus could have used many different words there. He could have said then in his determination. Uh, then in his wisdom, then in his effort. No, he didn't say those things though. He said then in his joy, then in his joy. Joy was the compelling force. Joy was the motivating factor. Joy is what drove this man to surrender everything that he had accumulated, everything that he counted dear, everything he held as valuable, to cash it all in to acquire this hidden treasure. Joy. He was compelled by joy. I want to submit to you this morning 
that joy is at the heart of conversion and that it is at the heart of perseverance in our faith. As I was preparing for this message, I had um, the fortunate experience of running across um, another sermon written on this same passage by a pastor named John Piper. Some of you might have heard of him. And I want to read to you uh, just a very brief paragraph of his treatment of this term, joy. And he says this, This parable describes how a person is converted and brought into the kingdom of heaven. He discovers a treasure and is impelled by joy to sell all that he has in order to have this treasure. You are converted to Christ when Christ becomes for you a treasure chest of holy joy. Think about that. You are converted to Christ. You become a Christian when Christ becomes for you a treasure chest of holy joy. The new birth of this holy affection is the common root of all the conditions of salvation. We are born again converted when Christ becomes a treasure in whom we find so much delight that trusting Him, obeying Him, and turning from all that belittles Him becomes our normal habit. In other words, we're not guilted into becoming Christians. We're not manipulated into believing in Jesus. When we behold Him, when we behold Him truly, and when we understand our state before Him, we're overcome with joy, and that joy compels us to move towards Him, and it compels us to never look back, And it compels us to never look to the left or to the right to any other cheap substitute. Many years ago, an old preacher named Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon that he entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, or we might say the Expulsive Power of a Greater Affection. Sometimes we struggle with sin as Christians, don't we? Sometimes when we look at God's Word and then we examine our lives, we find dissonance, we find a gap, we see our shortcomings, our weakness, or God's Word lays bare for us where we still cling to the things of this world or where we still have an appetite for sin. You know what two of the most devastating sins are in the church today? Gossip and pornography. Gossip is like a cancer that erodes the very relational fabric of God's family. And if you're here today and you're a gossip, you need to know that you're tearing God's church apart from within when you gossip. If you're here today and you're addicted to pornography, the next time you look or are tempted to look at pornography, I want you to think of this mental picture. I want you to think of a big, tall glass full of dirty toilet water. And when you look at that pornography, I want you to think about drinking that filthy glass of toilet water. 
because that's what pornography is for your soul. That being said, some sinful habits are hard to break, and sometimes repentance is not easy, am I correct? We see our need, but it seems so difficult, and sometimes we don't feel hopeful. And so what do we do? We focus more and more and more on that sin. Ugh, I'm, I can't give up the porn. I can't stop gossiping. God, help me. I failed again. I'm just going to try harder next time. And then what happens? We look at porn again. Or we tear our neighbor down again. And the cycle of self-loathing and frustration and brokenness perpetuates. But brothers and sisters, we need to remember in those moments that the solution to the mortification of our sin, the solution to putting to death the things that Christ died for, is not spending more time looking at the things. It's spending more time looking at the Savior. You see, there's a reason that old song goes something like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full to His wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow what? Strangely dim. And how does it continue? Can you be full of His glory and grace? The expulsive power of a new affection. Friends, the way you stop looking at porn is start looking at Jesus. You love porn less by loving Jesus more. You love your gossip less by loving Jesus more. And when you love Jesus more, you'll love his bride more. I always tell people, people say to me, all, especially young people, oh, yeah, man, I, I love Jesus. I'm down with Jesus. I'm just not down with his church. Oh, that's cute. How about this? You can't love Jesus and hate his bride. You can't love Jesus and not love his church. You can't love Jesus and not love the people that he's making holy that he shed his blood and died for. But as we look to Jesus, as we behold his glory, as we appreciate his humiliation in his incarnation, in his life and ministry, as we appreciate his humiliating death on a cross, as we remember the fact that God had to die so that we could live, as we look to His marvelous, wonderful, glorious, beautiful, majestic face, we will love Him more. We will find joy that is lasting, not joy that is ephemeral and passing, like perhaps the joy we got when we opened our Christmas presents a few days ago. I was really excited because I saved up for the past couple of years. My wife wanted a nice digital camera so that she could photo document our kids as they grow. So I was able to consult with some experts in the congregation and buy her a nice digital camera and she has already taken a gazillion pictures and I have to figure out how we're going to store them all. But that joy won't last. The only joy that will last is the joy that this man found when he dug up that treasure, when he reburied it and then went and sold all he had and bought that field. The only joy that will last is the joy that's found in Jesus. That pipe, the, the sermon that I, that I read that paragraph from by John Piper um, <clears throat> is entitled Christian Hedonism. And, and this is brilliant. John Piper has coined this term Christian Hedonism. What is Hedonism, first of all? 
the love of pleasure. pleasure, right? Thank you, Jerry. I'm working hard up here, brother. I appreciate your assistance. <clears throat> love the people in the front row. Can I get a witness, Lauren? Can I get a witness, girl? I love it. Love it. Church should be enjoyed, not endured. <clears throat> I forgot my train of thought. Yeah, that's right. Okay, hedonism. Thank you. John Piper is right, Christian hedonism. So hedonism is the love of pleasure, right? And so John Piper has talked about this very passage, and he says, look, when we behold the gospel, when we behold the kingdom, when we behold Jesus, who is at the center of the gospel, the center of the kingdom, who is our point of entry and point of security, when we find our pleasure in him versus in experiences or in things, we become Christian hedonists. And that's what we're called to. We're called to be a people that enjoy pleasure. Pleasure in our Savior. And there is an expulsive power in that pleasure. That joy is the joy which helps us, which enables us to walk away from everything that hinders us and holds us back. But there's one more thing I want to tell you about this treasure. Not only is this treasure hidden, not only is it valuable, not only is it discovered, but this treasure... God's kingdom, the gospel, and Jesus himself demand an unhesitating response. Unhesitating. Jesus says hard things in the gospels. And when he calls disciples to follow him, he says, follow me. It is an imperative and it means right now. And amongst the hard sayings in the gospels are encounters like when Jesus crosses paths with the eager scribe who expresses his interest in being Jesus' disciple. But Jesus says to this eager scribe, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, look man, if you're going to come follow me, it's not going to lead to material security. It's not going to lead to a life of leisure or luxury like you might think. To the would-be disciple who wants to follow Jesus, but first needs to go bury his father, which was a very, very important Jewish ceremonial rite. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Follow me now. Let the dead bury their dead. Whoa. That's heavy. So the treasure demands an unhesitating response. And at this point, we're just through the first parable. I think that it's important that we stop, pause for the cause, if you will, and ask ourselves a question. Let's do a little bit of self-spiritual troubleshooting. Is that okay? I think it's appropriate to do that because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 15 to those early Christians that he's writing to, guys, examine yourselves to see if we are of the faith. And if, as if that sentence were not sufficient, he punctuates that sentence with one more imperative, test yourselves. So I want to ask a question this morning. This is a question I wrestled with as I labored over this message, as I was forced to engage what God's Word has to say to us. As I stand up here and proclaim God's Word, I'm proclaiming to you out of it, not reading we want into it. What if I don't have this joy? What if we don't have this joy? 
What if my life, what if your life, what if our lives are not characterized by this kind of unhesitating response? Sometimes it's, it's easy to engage Scripture and to discern the spiritual truth, right? Like you see the spiritual principle, but then the challenge is the application, right? Like what does this look like for my situation? What does this look like for my life? Well, if any of us are here and we struggle with this question, what if I don't have this joy? Jesus has already given us the answer to this question earlier in chapter 13. Jesus opens chapter 13 with the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower isn't so much about the kingdom itself, but the message of the kingdom, how the message is received, the gospel message, if you will. And Jesus says in that parable, there's basically two types of people. There's basically two types of soil. There's good soil and there's bad soil. There, there are people who will receive the message and it will, it will take root and bear fruit. And there are those who, for varying reasons, and he gives three, will not receive it. Or they'll receive it and it will die. And one of those examples he gives is in Matthew 13, 22. When the disciples come to him and they're like, Jesus, what's going on in this parable of the sower and why are you teaching the crowds in parables? Jesus explains to his disciples the parable of the sower and he tells them that the cares of the world, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of choke the word. Choke it. That's a violent word. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You know, Jesus talks more about money and wealth and mammon, worldly wealth, than he does about sex. He talks more about that than anything else. And here Jesus says, with respect to reception of the gospel, the message of the kingdom, that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke it out. In Revelation chapters 1 through 3, Jesus pronounces woes or warnings against the seven churches. And the last church that he addresses is the church in Laodicea. And that church had grown lukewarm, and he warns them to be either hot or cold, but not to be lukewarm. And that church has, had grown lukewarm because it had grown materially affluent. Jesus says, you say, I am rich. I have stored up all this stuff. But his rebuke to them is that all their storing up and their affluence was really going to lead to their undoing. Should they not repent and surrender all of that to take hold of the thing of ultimate joy? When we see this man dig up this buried treasure, it is in sharp, stark, striking, ultra-high definition contrast to the rich young ruler, who in chapter 19 of this same gospel will will encounter Jesus. What do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? I've done this, 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 and this. Ah, yes, Jesus says, but one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And the man, that rich ruler, goes away sad because he had accumulated much and his heart was too wed to his things and he couldn't do it. The deceitfulness of riches choked the word and it proves unfruitful. We live 
in the most materially prosperous time in human history, in the most materially prosperous culture, and we, are, we live in one of the most privileged, expensive, and materially prosperous geographic regions in all of our country. If you think about it, there's a sense in which from like a secular perspective in all of human history, we're sitting at the apex. We're sitting in church in Hermosa Beach, California, where I woke up and even though I got in my car and there was a little snowflake indicator on the thermostat because it was like 39 degrees, I said, man, it's 39 degrees, how am I going to make it? Rough life in Southern California, right? The culture that we live in and move in and have our being in is, is so materialistic, I think it affects us in ways we don't even realize. And so if you don't experience joy in the gospel, if you are not experiencing joy with, with respect to the kingdom, then I challenge you, as I have challenged myself, as I was challenged by God's word, to ask, do the cares of the world choke out my joy? Do the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word in me? Am I, am I not experiencing joy because, quite frankly, my joy is rooted in other things? Perhaps my life doesn't exhibit the kind of response that this man in this parable exhibits because my values are all tied up somewhere else. You know, we all know what it's like to receive a paycheck, right? Many of us have lived paycheck to paycheck. And we know what it's like to receive a paycheck and then to subsequently feel like, oh man, all right, I could pay the bills, I could pay the credit cards, I can buy the thing. I feel a momentary bit of relief, right? I feel a momentary bit of security, of liberation, of, of freedom. Interestingly enough, as a child, as a child, or as children, might I say, we don't feel the kind of freedom or liberation or security that's tied to cashing a paycheck, right? Maybe that's one of the reasons Jesus says that if we come to him, we need to come to him like little children. But here's the thing. We all know what it's like to feel that sense of relief, so think about it. Hold on to that feeling for a second. That feeling needs to be felt with respect to the gospel. That feeling needs to be felt with respect to the kingdom. That feeling needs to be felt with respect to Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Right. Last night, I was thrown for a little bit of a loop before I got up to preach because I heard about the very, 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 very tragic death of um, a friend of mine. And it shook me. You know, we just had Christmas, and we exchanged gifts, and I had a nice time with my family, and I prepared my sermon, I was getting up to preach, and all of a sudden, I was confronted with reality. Reality that we live in a dark, broken, and painful world. We live in a world where sin has consequences. Sin has wages, the wages of sin is death, and so we experience brokenness 
We experience loss. We experience disappointment. We experience hurt. And worst of all, we experience death. But we should find joy in the message of the king. We should find joy in the gospel. We should find joy in Jesus. Because it's, it's because of Jesus that death doesn't have the final say. It's because of Jesus that this isn't it. It's because of Jesus that the, the power of sin has been defeated in our lives. That the consequences of sin do not need to be paid for by us. It's because of Jesus that God can disclose His plan in this book, His book of self-disclosure. And through this we see that God's plan is a plan from creation to new creation. A creation that was perfect, but fell and became painful and cold and bitter and indifferent when we sin, when we introduce sin into it. But God is a God of grace, of sovereignty, of mercy, of compassion. A God of justice, because He's a God of justice, He must, must deal with sin. He must not just eliminate it, He must also punish it. But He came to die so that we wouldn't have to endure the punishment of sin ourselves. But it doesn't just end at forgiveness. It also extends to reconciliation. We should find joy in the message of the kingdom because not only are we forgiven for our sin, we're reconciled with a holy God, a loving Father who adopts us as His children, who does not cast us away though we deserve it, but draws us near when we don't. We should find joy in the message of the kingdom because Jesus is coming again from creation to new creation. We don't die, just go to heaven and like sit and play a harp as eternal cherubs on clouds. That's mythical nonsense. Read the end. Read Revelation. John's vision tells us, behold, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be a new creation and the dwelling place of God will be with man. So we won't like go to church on those weekends and I'll get up and explain to you God's word. We'll all go to the temple and new creation and worship God our Father as Jesus himself stands amidst us having secured our salvation, having secured all the necessary preconditions for the possibility of a new creation. We could unwrap this more and more and more and more, but I know you have to go to brunch, so I'm going to move on. But here's the thing. The more you focus on those things, the more your joy will be found there. And the more your joy is found there, and the more you anticipate what is to come and appreciate the one who made all of it possible, the more strength you will have, and the more joy you will have to say no to porn, and no to gossip, and no to being entertained by all the things that Jesus hung on that cross and died for. I've got 10 minutes left. We still have three parables. <laughs> Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. As if the, the picture of the man finding the treasure wasn't vivid enough, Jesus reinforces it with a parallel parable about finding a pearl that is invaluable. This pearl likewise is hidden. It needs to be found. But the, but the pearl is not found accidentally. In this parable, 
The pearl is sought. Some of us stumble upon the kingdom accidentally. God leads us by His grace. Some of us are searching for it, and we find it, just as the merchant was searching for this fine pearl, and he found it. So the pearl is hidden, the pearl is sought. The writer that Hebrews tells us in Hebrews eleven six 6, that without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. And here it is, that He rewards those who seek Him. Some who find the kingdom are not looking for it, but stumbled upon it. Some who find the kingdom are looking for it diligently. Regardless, the pearl is invaluable. Regardless, the kingdom is invaluable. Its value eclipses the value of everything else. This one pearl that was found by this merchant eclipsed the value of all the other pearls he ever had or sold. Let me ask you this question. If you're a merchant, you're selling things. What does that imply? It implies that you have things to sell, right? I mean, unless you're a fraud. But it's safe for us to assume in the context of this parable, this merchant had pearls to sell. And what we don't appreciate because we're separated from this passage in this culture, in this text by 2,000 years, is that in that time and in that setting, in antiquity, pearls were one of the most, if not the most valuable commodities that one could obtain. Exceedingly rare. Hard to find at the bottom of the sea. And they, of course, didn't have the technical, technological methods to synthesize Fake pearls. Today it's like you see a pearl like, oh, okay, that's, that's nice. You know, I got three necklaces. In that day, one pearl, let alone a string of pearls, was a very, very ambitious display of wealth. Extraordinary display of wealth. And so Jesus here is evoking imagery of a guy that has some wealth because he's reselling things that are some of, if not the most valuable commodities at that time. Most valuable luxuries. But what do we see? We see that this man was searching for fine pearls because he was a merchant. He wanted to find pearls to resell. But then, in his searching, he found one. He found one pearl whose value eclipsed all the others combined. And so what did he do? He sold all that he had. He cashed in his entire inventory, including his possessions, including his house and home, including everything he had to take hold of and hold on to this invaluable pearl. Not to resell it, but to keep it, to hold on to it, to treasure it. The pearl is invaluable. There's a sense in which all of life is seeking after value, isn't it? And sometimes we find value fortuitously, and sometimes we find value with great effort. But often our sense of value is skewed. And that is why it is so important, friends, for us to come to church and hear God's word proclaimed. And that is why it is so important, friends, to come to church and to humble ourselves before him and to offer him worship. Because it's not really about the band, even though I like to say that Pastor Justin's voice is a soothing balm of vocal goodness. But it's not about the band. It's not about the instruments. It's not the musical prowess. What really matters is that we, when we come together corporately, congregationally, we are together assuming a posture of humility and giving Him worship. And as we give Him worship, and as we hear His word proclaimed, our minds and our hearts are recalibrated and refocused on what our ultimate object of joy needs to be. 
Because when we see that ultimate object of joy and we hold on to it anew, we're compelled to continue walking in perseverance. Amen? So that all leads me to my first main point. I'm going to get to the other two very quickly, I promise. And that is this, that God's kingdom is worth surrendering everything to inherit. And its nearness requires radical response right now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, right now. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm going to fly through this. I've broken this parable into two sections. The first section concerns the parable itself, the imagery of the net. And the second part concerns what the imagery of the net leads up to, and that is the end. So we have the net and we have the end. But in verses 47 through 48, I'm sorry, verses 49 through yes, verses 47 through 48, I want you to note that the net gathers fish of every kind. The net doesn't just gather Christian fish, like the ones you see on the back of cars, right? The net just, the net just doesn't gather those. The net, God has cast a net, and he will gather every kind of fish. And this parallels the parable of the weeds that Jesus explained to his disciples when he stepped into the private setting with them, which he originally taught to the crowds, though they probably didn't understand it. And in the parable of the weeds and in the parable of the net, we see remarkable parallels, remarkable similarities. As a matter of fact, if you look at the second half of the parabolic discourse, the second half of chapter 13, you see the parable of the weeds explained, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the invaluable pearl, and then the parable of the net. And so the weeds and the net bookend or encapsulate or wrap these two parables about the value of the kingdom and the priority of responding to that kingdom, of me kingdom immediately. And the reason is twofold. The reason is that kingdom which is so valuable, which will come, which we need to respond to right now, will bring a day of reckoning. But before that day of reckoning comes, both the righteous and the unrighteous will dwell together until that final day of separation. So in the parable of the weeds, you see the wheat is sown, but then the evil one comes and sows bad seed, and the wheat and the weeds grow up together. So the righteous and the unrighteous will dwell together until that day of separation. But then in the parable of the net, you see the net is cast out, and it's drawn in, and the good and the bad fish are drawn in together. But in the end, Jesus says, in the end, there will be a day of reckoning. The kingdom will bring a day of reckoning. The unrepentant will be punished. And there's been great efforts, and there continue to be great efforts in the culture we live in to domesticate Jesus. I said earlier, Jesus has said many hard things. Nothing that Jesus says is harder than what he says about hell. Nothing that Jesus says is harder than eternal punishment, eternal consequences. Those are the hardest things that he talks about. But many people today want to conveniently ignore those things or explain them away as merely symbolic. Even if they are symbolic because he's speaking in parables, the reality couldn't be any less heinous than what he's explaining symbolically. And 
In all of Scripture, Jesus is the one that talks the most about hell. He describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessings of God, a prison, a place of torment where the worm doesn't turn or die. And we all believe in eternal life, right? Creation, a new creation, a new creation which will be eternal and everlasting. The dwelling place of God will be with man. We shall reign with him forevermore. Eternal. The same adjective in the Greek, ionios, that is applied to eternal life is also applied to eternal judgment. It's not just symbolic. It's real. And so Jesus has offered two parables, the hidden treasure and the invaluable pearl to emphasize the value of the kingdom and the immediacy of response that the kingdom demands. But then he has offered another parable, a warning about the judgment that the kingdom will bring. When I was young, my mom used to like to say to me, Mike, don't make me repeat myself, right? Now I'm a dad, and uh, by God's grace, I have two, two young children. Um, our son's just almost three months old, and um, our daughter's almost two. And I'm starting to have to repeat myself with Zoe, with, with our daughter. Um, and so I can kind of sympathize with this. Man, mom, I'm sorry what I made you go through all those years. Here's the deal, though. Jesus does repeat himself. Because his warning is reiterated, not uttered for the first time, but reiterated in the parable of the net. The, the warning originally comes in his explanation of the parable of the weeds. In both those parables, he says, so it will be at the end of the age. This is coming. There will be a gathering. There will be a separation. The angels will throw the unrighteous into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So just as there are two kinds of soil at the very beginning of the parabolic discourse, good and bad, there are two kinds of crops at the harvest. There are wheat and there are weeds. And just as there are two kinds of crops at the harvest, there are two kinds of fish when the net is drawn in, good fish and bad fish. And just as there are only two kinds of each of these, there are only two kinds of people. People? People who inherit the kingdom and people who are excluded from it. Don't take it from me, take it from Jesus. Inclusion in the kingdom means exclusion from judgment. And inclusion and judgment means exclusion from the kingdom. They are mutually exclusive, and that's why Jesus ties them together. Jesus wraps the parables of kingdom value and parables of kingdom warning because they're the flip sides of the same coin. If you're included in the kingdom, you will be excluded from judgment. But if you're included in judgment, you will be excluded from the kingdom. And that is the bottom line. And so every single person in this room today will fall into one of those two categories. Not because I said it, because Jesus said it. And then he backed his words up by dying on a cross and then, oh yeah, rising again. Conquering death. And then being ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father on the heavenly throne where God has delegated to him all authority in heaven on earth. And so as Jesus says, there's going to be a gathering and there's going to be a separation. He's speaking prophetically about the, the separating and the judging that he himself is going to do. And that leads me to the next main point, that Jesus warns us that kingdom judgment is certain and that it will produce terrible sorrow. And he warns us twice. What an incalculable cost, right? If the kingdom is of inestimable value, then the judgment is of incalculable cost. And so I ask you this morning, is your money worth that much? Is your porn worth that much? Is your Gossip worth that much? Is your bitterness or unforgiveness that you harbor against some person in your heart worth that much? Because that's an incalculable cost. And finally, we turn to the very last section, 
verse 51. And Jesus is a good shepherd. So often we think it all depends on us, right? And we don't realize he's been leading us all along. That he's faithful and true. And as we watch Matthew's gospel unfold, unwrap, we see that Jesus is constantly discipling his disciples. He's training them. He's leading them. He's shepherding them. He's the good shepherd, right? And so he does that here. He asks them, guys, have you understood these things? I want to make sure you've understood. Have you understood these things? They said to him, yes. And he says to them, therefore. Therefore. That's an important word. That's a conclusion indicator. When we say therefore, we're getting to the point, right? Like on the basis of everything else that I've taught you in this parabolic discourse, I'm now going to say therefore, and I'm going to tell you something very important. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Well, that seems very cryptic to us, but to his disciples it would have made a lot of sense. There's two key terms that unfold the meaning, and they're a a little bit more clear in the original language. But when Jesus says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom, that could be translated every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom. Well, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, right? And he's discipling his disciples, and we're his disciples, and he's discipling us through his word and by by his spirit. So he's training us. What is the scribe business? Well, constantly in the Gospels, Jesus is dealing with three people groups, the religious leaders who oppose him, the crowds who he sifts, and some end up being his disciples, and the third group is the disciples. Well, some of those religious leaders are scribes. They're like the the Old Testament scholars, right? They're like the Bible professors of old, and they set up shop and teach seminary in the local synagogue. Well, many of the scribes didn't like Jesus and opposed Jesus. And so their hearts were hardened against the message of the kingdom. Their hearts were hardened against Jesus and his ministry. Their hearts were hardened, like we see in the parable of the sower. And so Jesus says to his disciples, every scribe who's been discipled for the kingdom, by the way, that's what I'm doing with you guys. I'm discipling you for the kingdom. You're the new scribes. Those guys, they're obsolete now. They've missed it. You're the new scribes. Every new scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. That term, master of the house, when used in the Gospels, generally applies to Jesus or to God the Father. The master of the house who is benevolent. The master of the house who manages and oversees and has authority. But here, Jesus extends that term to his disciples. And whenever Jesus does that, and it only happens a few times, it's intended to explain how the disciples are to act, how they're to act. And so Jesus says, you are now to act as the masters of the house. You've been given these kingdom treasures. You've been given not just what is old, but you've been given what is old in light of what is new. You've received these kingdom teachings. These are kingdom treasures. And now you are masters of the house. Jesus is speaking as the master of the house. But he is extending that role to his disciples and saying, you are like masters of the house. And it is now your responsibility to bring out, not to withhold, but to bring out treasures, both what is new and what is old. What is old referring to the teachings from the Old Testament, what is new referring to Jesus' teachings which fulfill the Old Testament. You're armed with what's old and with what's new. You are, I make you masters of the house. And now it is up to you to go be kingdom scribes. And this anticipates, of course, Jesus' great commission in that climactic moment when he has ascended or when he has risen in Matthew chapter 28. And he tells the disciples, go and make disciples. 
You're my kingdom scribes. And that brings me to my final point this morning, and that is very simply that just as Jesus trained and sent his first disciples as kingdom scribes, so today we are dispatched to declare the same kingdom treasures to all the world. I think it was in Spider-Man, they say, like, with great power comes great responsibility, right? With great kingdom wisdom, with great kingdom treasures comes great responsibility. And that responsibility has been extended not just to the first disciples and not just to all the disciples between us and them, but that responsibility, that privilege, that calling, that purpose has been extended to you and to me. We wrestle with so much existential angst in this culture over what our purpose is. What am I supposed to do with my life? Let me tell you what you're supposed to do. Take the gospel, find your joy in that gospel, and go be a kingdom scribe. That's your purpose. That doesn't mean you have to stand up here and preach vocationally. You can be a kingdom scribe as a police officer. You can be a kingdom scribe as a firefighter. You can be a kingdom scribe as an IT consultant. You can be a kingdom scribe as anything, anybody, as a student, as a son, as a daughter, as a parent, as a legal guardian. But we're all called. And so my conclusion is very simply this. I've gone long, and I thank you for being very gracious and patient with me. It runs in the family. <laughs> Here's the conclusion. Are you ready? Yes. For the kingdom. We are called to live for the kingdom. We're not called to live for our jobs ultimately. We are not called to live to build a life for us here ultimately. We're not called to live for earthly temporal pleasures which are fleeting and passing and cannot satisfy anyways. We are called to live for the kingdom. It costs Jesus everything to establish it. For the kingdom to be possible, God had to die. Think about that. God died. God died. And so we are now called to live for the kingdom. I want to hear you say it. I want to hear you own it. Church, for the kingdom. 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 Amen.